Lauren Willig's latest book, A Summer Country, is an epic family saga simmering with secrets set in 19th century Barbados. It's quite a departure from her World War I and II historical fiction and the Napoleonic era pink carnation mysteries that are so popular. But Lauren, author of more than 30 award-winning, best-selling books, says being adaptable is a key if you want to have a long-standing career as an author. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's binge reading podcast, Lauren talks about how a resort holiday that was meant to be all about lying in the sun, sipping fizzy drinks, sparked an idea that would not let her go. She talks about her successful collaboration with two very close friends, both of them also best-selling historical authors, and why she thinks reading tastes have been changing during the pandemic. But before we get to Lauren, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Drop by and say hello to us there. We always love to hear from listeners. But now, here's Lauren. Hello there, Lauren, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Look, Lauren, you've got 30 or more books published to your credit now, mainly historical mysteries and historical fiction. You've won all sorts of awards and made it onto numerous bestseller lists. Things like the New York Times list, the booksellers best list. You've got Rita's wonderful career that you've had. But how did you get started on this road? I've been doing this for a very long time. I made the decision when I was six that I was going to write fiction where I grew up. It was largely um, out of frustration. I had wanted to be either a ballerina or a princess, and it finally dawned on me that I couldn't dance, and no one was offering me a kingdom, which was very inconsiderate of them. So I figured I would go with my third option and be a novelist instead. And having decided that and told everyone in the first grade, I had to stick with it. It's just amazing. It's remarkable that you'd have such a sense of confidence and destiny so young. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's one of those things where when you keep at something, it self-perpetuates. I sent my first manuscript off to Simon Schuster when I was nine. And of course, they sent back a form letter. I was gutted. But sort of having gone down that road, I had to keep cracking away at it. Yeah. And the truth is, I adore historical fiction, well, all kinds of fiction, really, and have never wanted to do anything more than I've wanted to live in stories, both my own and other people's. That's wonderful. Now, I know you've got a book that's very soon going to be out, Band of Sisters. We will talk about that a little later on in our chat together, but the one we're focusing on today is The Summer Country, which is your most recent book as we're speaking. It's been described as an epic family saga simmering with secrets, just the sort of story I must admit that I love, these family sagas simmering with secrets. And it's a book that you've said just begged to be written. You almost tried to 
keep it quiet and not do it, but it just wouldn't let you alone, would it? Tell us about that. Well, this was a book that grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. It's a departure for me, both geographically and in subject matter. Most of my books are set in England. um, And they usually, although there's a great deal of drama in some of them, the drama is usually of the domestic variety. I certainly never meant to tackle slavery or racism or really big, heartbreaking topics. But about, oh goodness, 11 years ago now, I went on a girl's trip with my two best friends from grad school. We had decided we were just going to lie on a warm beach with fruity drinks in our hands and do nothing. But this did not work very well for us. We all spent most of our lives in libraries. One of them was a medievalist, another did Renaissance Europe, and I was an early modernist who was already writing novels. And so we were used to spending most of our time in libraries, and we really weren't used to direct sunlight. So we burned rather badly that first day and then decided to look for indoor activities. So we found a plantation tour where we were told a story about how the plantation had burned down in a fire and the owner's Portuguese ward had died, except that she was neither Portuguese nor his ward. She was his daughter by an enslaved woman. And the rest of the story we were told that day was about the plantation owner, how he was gutted by his daughter's death and spent the rest of his life rocking on the veranda, chasing the shade. And you could still hear this rocking chair creaking on the veranda, which was a great Gothic ghost story. I love a Gothic ghost story. But what really caught my imagination at the time, and why I really wondered about, was where was the child's mother? Was she there too the night of the fire? Had she agreed to have her child enter the household as a Portuguese ward, or had the child been torn from her? And of course, being that horrible person in the group, I asked the tour guide who couldn't tell me. All they knew was that the mother had been an unnamed enslaved woman, and they had no idea who she was, what happened to her, what the story was. And that was meant to be that. I went back to New York. I was writing a book set during the Napoleonic Wars, light and flippant, with lots of antics, with Napoleon behaving badly. And But I couldn't get that missing mother out of my head, that nameless enslaved woman whose child died in the fire. Yeah. And so for years, this story, it, it haunted me, particularly when I years later had children of my own and the full impact of what that meant came to me. And But it was a story that really almost didn't get written because when I first came back and my editor asked me why I wanted to write next, and I said, well, I have this... Barbados idea. And she was like, no, 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 no. You cannot write a book set in the Caribbean. I thought, okay, well, maybe that's for the best. My background is in English history, not in Caribbean history. I don't know why I'm doing. These are big topics. Maybe it's fate. And every now and then I take off that file and dust it off and then stick it away again. And it took about, oh gosh, eight years after that initial trip before my agent finally said to me, you have to write the Barbados book already so you'll stop talking about it to me. Yeah, it's peculiar, isn't it? It's just one of those things that certain time periods and settings dominate the bestseller lists. I mean, you would know that well because some of your books are set in those periods like World War I and World War II currently, while others, like your Caribbean story, as you mentioned, find it a little harder to gain acceptance, I think, with certainly with publishers, but even with readers as well. Why do you think this is? And is there a way of breaking through? Oh, goodness. This is something I've thought about a lot. And it's very funny because when I had that discussion with my editor at that time, she said, you know what, you can write anything you like, 
as long as it's set in England. And then she paused for a moment, thought very seriously and added, you can write anything you like as long as it's set in 19th century England. <laughs> so whenever I really want to terrify my agent, my, my academic background is in the English Civil War. So whenever I want to scare my agent, I tell her I'm finally going to write my big English Civil War saga. And the thought of my going 17th century just scares her speechless. But I, I do have some theories about why this is. I think for some reason, although I can't really quite put my finger on it, there are synergies between certain time periods. Mm. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s, which was the era of the Victorian saga, both um, Victorian England and a lot of American Civil War novels and movies. For some reason, the era of big hoop skirts appealed to the era of big hair. And then when I came of age and graduated from college in 1999, that dot-com era was the era of the Jane Austen reboot. Suddenly, it was all chiclet and comedies of manners, and the two, they dovetailed very, very well. And it was very different from the earlier Victoriana Gothic stage of the 80s. And now, I think the reason that World War II has such appeal is that it's the ultimate battle of good and evil. Right now, we don't want subtlety. We don't want wisecracking banter. We want good prevailing. We want evil being very obvious and being crushed. And there's certainly an appeal to that. But I do find it fascinating because, of course, a decade ago, you could not sell a World War II novel. <laughs> what it really took was Kristen has, Kristen has Nightingale breaking out for suddenly publishers to wake up and say, wow, there's an appetite for this and such an appetite and it shows no sign of abating. Yeah, yeah. Look, your book, The Summer Country, has got quite a, a degree of historic basis, as, as you've already mentioned. And I gather that there's a very touching quote in the beginning, which you took the title from, a quote for, written by a man called Joshua Steele, a Londoner who did have slaves in Barbados in the early 1800s. And he said that Barbados was like the eternal summer country. Now, when you think of the life and conditions of some of the people there, it seems remarkably rose-tinted. But he was one of the models for your characters, wasn't he? Yes, I was fascinated by Joshua Steele because to me he embodied the contradictions in the Enlightenment project. That there was Steele, he was a reformer who inherited an estate in Barbados and came over with all of these grand ideas of all the things that he was going to change. And he believed strongly in the fundamental dignity of all men, and which a very unpopular opinion at the time among his fellow plantation owners, that there was really no difference between Afro-Caribbeans and the descendants of Englishmen, except for the fact that one group had been deliberately kept in ignorance. He compared the enslaved people to the Saxons under the Norman yoke and said that, you know, like the Saxons, with proper education, they were going to become good, sturdy yeomen and British citizens. This was not popular with his fellow plantation owners. So he had all of these grand ideas for improvement and all of that. But at the same time, there's also a certain callous. And for him, it's an intellectual game. And the reason I chose the quote from him I did to start the book, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll paraphrase, but basically he talks about how 
improving the lives of his enslaved people has provided years of entertainment for him. And for him, it is entertainment. It never really occurs to him that this could come back to bite him personally because he is a white Englishman. He can always just walk away. And again, the reason Joshua Steele became one of the models for my characters, and I am so fascinated by him, is it does bite him personally, because he fell in love with his enslaved housekeeper. I mean, we know he loved her. We have no idea how she felt about him. That's a whole other story. But they lived together as man and wife, and they had two children together. But the wrinkle was he didn't own her. She was owned by a neighboring slaveholder, and he leased her. For whatever reason, the neighboring slaveholder was not interested in selling. When, when he died, he left his fortune to their two children. And his sister back in England sued on the grounds that property could not own property and the estate should be hers. I mean, the courts in England did not want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. This was not a popular sort of thing in England at the time. So they bounced it back to Barbados where the courts said, well, yeah, property can't own property, and they disinherited the kids. And I don't believe it ever would have occurred to Joshua Steele that his last testament would have been disregarded, that his children would have been disinherited, that the system which he thought he could somehow change or mold would in the end come back to destroy his family. In the end, the children get away to England. His executor takes them to England where the the son is raised at the same school as the executor's son. The daughter goes to a young ladies academy and marries into the English upper middle class. And it's all sort of okay. But that really, that really caught my attention. The fact that as powerful as this man was, as well connected, he couldn't even protect his own children. And so that very much informed one of the main male characters in this book, Charles Davenant, who is also a young man who inherits a plantation in Barbados with ideas about all these grand enlightenment schemes he's going to implement, but who quickly discovers that he can't even protect or free the woman he loves, and he can't prevent their child from being enslaved. Yeah. And the next generation down, because this is a dual timeline story, there's a female character, we'll be vague about how this happens, but a female <laughs> character who inherits the sugar plantation from her grandfather. I just wondered how likely it would be that a woman could inherit property like that at this time. It's the 1850s by now and the slaves have been freed. So the first bit of the book, well, they, that you, you interleave between the two, but in the earlier part of the dual timeline, the slaves are still enslaved and then later they've been freed. Would Emily in that period have been able to inherit the plantation like the book? Absolutely, because the way property law worked at the time was women could in fact hold property so long as they weren't married. And that's always the wrinkle. And there is, there's in fact been some excellent work done on female plantation owners on Barbados, more in the 18th century than the 19th century, frankly, although I think that has more to do with social norms than it does to, with legal restrictions. Because in the 18th century, you have a lot of female entrepreneurs and businesswomen, and so it's less of a fraught proposition, although it's always a fraught proposition, but less of a fraught proposition for a woman to be running her own plantation, whereas by the mid 
19th century, by the 1850s, we are at the height of the ideal of the angel of the hearth, where women are meant to be sweet and timid and exuding good moral influence from the comfort of the home while the men go out and do all the hard stuff. So I think in some ways, although the legal situation is really unchanged, it's much harder for Emily in 1854 to inherit a plantation that would have been for an equivalent character a century earlier, not because of any actual restrictions, but because of social pressures. And of course, the real wrinkle is as soon as you marry, your hus- your property by law becomes your husband's. It's yeah. a legal principle called couverture, where the body of the male literally covers that, the legal body of the male literally covers that of the woman and eclipses her, I mean, which is quite an image there for you. And there were all sorts of fascinating workarounds that heiresses on Barbados used to try to retain some control of their property, some of which worked better than others. But the bottom line is, yes, in 1854, a young woman from Bristol like Emily could absolutely have inherited a plantation, whether she could hold on to it and manage it is another story entirely. Yeah. You've got an impressive list of sources that you refer to at the end of the book. And it's obvious that getting the history right is very important to you. Just looking over other books as well, have there been instances when maintaining a happy balance between the historical record and your own fictional characters has been difficult or tricky? Well, I will say that with The Summer Country, really more than any of my other books, I felt a great deal of pressure to make sure I had triple-checked everything and read everything I could possibly read because the Caribbean is not my academic background. And I wanted to make sure, especially with the sorts of topics this book deals with, that I was doing justice to the time period, the place, and the characters. So I did really triple the amount of research I would normally do on this book. And I called in favors from all of my friends friends who are still in academia because back in my academic days, I used to run the history department social club. So I have some very embarrassing pictures of people. So everyone was really (laughs) very, very helpful. But (laughs) the funny thing is I actually have not had that much difficulty in maintaining a balance between the history and the fiction because years and years ago when I was a you know, teenager misspending my teenage years by reading writer's magazines, I read an article by John Jakes talking about his research and writing process, where he talked about how before he began a book, he would spend a year just reading, not taking notes, you know, not plotting, just reading everything available on the topic and letting it all sink in. And, you know, there have been times in my life where I've been writing two books a year. I certainly don't have a year to spend doing nothing but reading. But I always try to block off at least a few months to do nothing but read and let it sink in. And so by the time I sit down and try to plot my story, the characters and the situations are so informed by what I've already read that it's not a, well, the history is getting in my way. It's more the history becomes the scaffolding on which my story is built, or even better than scaffolding, it's a part of the weft. I I like them to work together. Yeah, yeah. Look, you started your career, you've made allusion to it already, with a mystery series, the the Pink Carnation series, a lot of books, I think 14 mysteries, set in France, England, Portugal during the Napoleonic era. And they're a take on the fictional aristocratic spy Scarlet Pimpernel, except, of course, this one turns out to be a woman. What made you decide to launch? I, I presume that was your first book. I'm not quite sure. But did you launch your, your career with the Pink Carnation series? 
I did, although it was never the book that was meant to be published. The funny thing was I had gone off to grad school to do a PhD in English history with the idea that I was going to write the kind of vast historical epics I had devoured in my youth. You know, Carleen Cohen's Through a Glass Darkly, Colleen McCullough's The Thornbirds. I wanted to write the sort of book that was good you know, the thousand page doorstop of a novel that would be described in reviews as a rich historical tapestry, because it's always a tapestry. But when I was in my, when I finished my general exams in grad school, I was thinking in footnotes, I was utterly burned out on the English Civil War. And I needed to do something for a break, something that was far away enough from my actual academic work, that it felt like a vacation. But close enough that would be something I knew. And so I settled on the Napoleonic Wars, which actually dovetailed with my academic work because I was writing my dissertation on spies, sorry, royalist conspiracies during the English Civil War. So royalist conspiracies during the Napoleonic Wars was an easy step for me. Anyway, it was really meant to be just for fun. It was a mix of Blackadder and Regency romance novels and old-fashioned swashbucklers and the Scarlet Pimpernel with a chiclet frame story about a disgruntled American grad student doing her dissertation research in England, where you can see where that one came from. And that character finds a never-before-found cache of family papers that gives her all the materials she needs, which was total wish fulfillment on my part, because there I was trudging back and forth between the British Library and the Public Records Office and not finding anything of the sort. Because, you know, when people write letters with burn this letter, most of the time they actually burn it. So anyway, but that book I wrote for fun. And the crazy thing is I gave it to a friend who happened to give it to a friend who was an agent, who at that point was just looking to move from representing serious literary fiction to something lighter. And my manuscript happened to be the something lighter that crossed his desk at that critical moment. And the next thing I knew, I got a call saying, I'm an agent. and I want to represent you. I spilled coffee all over myself. And you know, it's, it's funny how these things happen. Then 12 books later, it became a whole world of its own. But it was the book I never meant to write and having written it, never meant to have published. And are you still writing those now? Is there, are there- Well, I wound up the series back in 2015 with the 12th book okay. for a couple of reasons. You know, one was that I had also started writing standalone novels and I was trying to balance a standalone novel and a pink carnation novel a year around the same time I had my first child. And so, and also started co-writing with two good friends. So the combination of two personal books a year, a book with friends and an infant who believed that naps were something that happened to other people, it just unfortunately wasn't sustainable. So I decided, okay, it was time to wrap up the series before it became stale and before I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Although I still miss those characters a lot. I lived with them for such a long time. Yes. Yes. Look, you've mentioned that collaboration, and maybe we should just move on to talking about that. That's with a couple of other very well-known historical fiction writers in their own right, Beatrice Williams and Karen Wright. And you've done several together that have been very, very prominent sellers. The Glass Ocean, set around the sinking of the Lusitania during World War One, and All the Ways We Say Goodbye, which is a three-generational story stretching from World War One to the 1960s. It seems incredibly complicated to have these very highly plotted books 
worked on by three people. How do you do it? It's because we're really, really, really good friends. In fact, the whole thing started one night because we were drinking together and started drunkenly going on about how much fun it would be if our publishers would pay for our girls' trip and our bar bill so we could spend more time together. And we came up with a brilliant idea of, oh my God, if we wrote a book together, they would send us on book tour together and pay all the bills. Hooray, let's just do it. It's amazing to me that it actually worked. But so what we usually do is we all live in different places. I'm in New York, Karen is in Georgia, and Beatrice is up in the way chippy top north of Connecticut. And so we get together to plot out the book and we spend three days downing red wine and gin and tonics and plotting out the whole book chapter by chapter, which is something we do not do with our own books. It only somehow works when we're together. So we plot out the entire book and then we each claim a character because usually what we do, we all write multi-timeline books in our own private lives. And so what we do is usually there are three time periods or in a couple of our books, we've had two characters in one period and another character in another time period. But so there are always three main viewpoint female characters. So after we plot the whole book together, we each claim a character and then we go back to our own little writing holes and we write round robin. So the first person will write her chapter, send it to the next one, will read it, then send it on. And that person will read the previous two chapters and write hers and send it on. So what we found is because we write round robin like that, and you're always reading the other two people's chapters before you start writing your own, our voices magically meld into something that's not quite our normal voices at all. And it also keeps themes and imagery and so on consistent because you're always reading the others first. That's terrific. That's That sounds a very creative way to do it. <laughs> well, we just, we stumbled into it because this whole thing really, we did by accident. Our agents did not like the idea at all. The publisher was skeptical, but we, we like to joke it was a pity buy. And people kept saying, well, three authors, it must be an anthology. And we kept saying, no, no, it's just a novel written by three people. And they were like, but you can't do that. <laughs> and then the book came out and people are like, oh, actually, you can do that. And we've been so amused by the fact that you've suddenly started to see more and more writing teams popping up once we've proved that three authors can actually write a book that's a book and not an anthology. Yeah. So was that the, the first one you did? Was that The Glass Ocean? Our first one was The Forgotten Room, which was about three generations of women in a Gilded Age New York mansion. Oh, I hadn't seen that one. I must I must look it out. Look, you had quite a strong academic career. You've referred to it before turning to full-time writing. I think you even did law at one stage. Tell us something about that experience and how has it fed back into your writing? Well, you know, the funny thing is it's generally always been the writing that's come first. I decided as a senior in college, I was going to go to grad school with the idea that it would help me write absolutely accurate historical novels. And of course, you know, in the grad school, the first thing you learn is there is no absolute historical accuracy, which <laughs> yeah. is very frustrating. Yeah. And my other reason for it was I figured if I were an academic, I would have these great three-month-long summer vacations where I could write my novels. And then, of course, I discovered that actually academics work very hard over the summer. And this whole three-month-long summer vacation idea was not what I thought it was. <laughs> so between that and grading student papers, about four years into my PhD, I decided that maybe this wasn't the career for me. And I was at the Harvard History Department at the time. And since my whole family are lapsed academics who became lawyers... I decided I would succumb to the family curse 
and lob in an application to Harvard Law. And if I got in, I would finish my PhD while doing a JD and be a lawyer. And if not, I would stick out with academia and be the best possible English Civil War historian I could be. Anyway, I got in. And so I was, the crazy thing was, my first month at Harvard Law, I got that first book contract for the Secret History of the Pink Carnation. And it was a two-book contract. They wanted a second book, which absolutely blew my mind that they were going to let me write another one. And so I wound up juggling my law school years with writing a Pink Carnation book a year. And I practiced for a year and a half as a litigator at a large New York law firm while also continuing to write Pink Carnation novels before finally leaving. So my experience in both academia and law was very much shaded by the fact that the books were always there and really came first. Yeah. So is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would see as the secret of your success? Well, you know, I'm never actually sure I'm that much of a success. I'm still not where I would like to be as a writer, which I think most writers probably feel. We're always striving to write a better book. And you never quite feel like any of them have ju- have done it just yet. Unless, I guess, there must be confident writers out there who really adore their the sound of their own voice. But I always feel like I'm still striving to get to the book I want to write somehow. But I will say that I think the main secret to success for any author who wants a long career is to be adaptable, that you have to be willing to change both because you change and the time change, the times change, and you have to be willing to change along with them. Mm. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So turning to Lauren as reader, I don't know if you even have much time to read with all your writing and being a mother still of, of a young family, but what what have you in the past anyway liked to binge read when you've had the chance? And, and what do you think about this concept of binge reading? I think genre fiction, the more escapist fiction, is becoming more and more mainstream and acceptable, although the literary books still probably dominate. But what's your taste in genre fiction or binge reading fiction? Oh, goodness, there's so much there to answer. I can't function unless I'm reading other people's books. Having a book gap is one of the scariest things in the world to me. I always need to know what I'm going to be reading next. And I read usually about three or four novels a week. But my children are driving me crazy right now because my older one is a night owl, which was always great because she would sleep in and then I could read in the morning before she woke up. But now I have a younger one who's three, who's an early bird. So he has killed my early morning reading time. So I've had to find time to read in the margins. I've actually found that children being traumatized by COVID is very good because if they make you sit by their bedside, you can read on the dark in your Kindle for hours and it's great reading time. which is totally a silver lining. But, so I, I binge read like crazy. My, and I've always binge read all forms of genre fiction. I used to joke that the only genre I didn't really read was science fiction because I hate technology and technology hates me. But then my college roommate pointed out that Lois McMaster Boohold writes very good science fiction. So now I read that too, as long as it doesn't get too technical. I found that the pandemic has changed my reading habits as it has with so many people. I have kept myself sane by binge reading mid-century British mystery novels, particularly Patricia Wentworth's Miss Silver series. She, I, Most people have never heard of her. She's sort of a lesser Miss Marple. She's another omniscient knitting spinster who will come in and solve the crime. And I find her so deeply reassuring because you know that no matter what happens, there will be scones at the vicarage 
and Miss Silver will find the guilty party. So I, there are mercifully like 50 in the series. So I've been reading through those, but I've now run out. So I've had to revert to Miss Marple. I adore Dorothy Sayers, but for some reason I found her harder to read during the pandemic, maybe because I loved her so much pre-pandemic. The other thing I've been binge reading in these dark days is I found I have turned to a British Chiclet, especially Trisha Ashley's older books, which I love. They're also a sort of reassuring English village world. Trisha Ashley. Oh, I must look those out. I haven't I haven't um, come across her. Look, that's fantastic. I'm really impressed that you could read three or four books a week with everything else you've got on. That's remarkable. <laughs> well, my, my older one, my seven-year-old likes me to sit by her bed until she falls asleep. But unfortunately, she inherited my insomniac tendencies. So that can take a very long time. But the good thing is I sit there with my Kindle in the dark and whenever <laughs> she tries to talk to me, I just go, shh, go to sleep while I keep reading. <laughs> so I get to pretend to be a good mother while actually going through books. <laughs> Look, we're starting to come to uh, the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you would change? Well, you know, I think everyone looks back and has points where they say, well, if I'd only done X, Y, or Z, or if I'd done this differently or that differently. But the problem is I fundamentally don't believe you can do counterfactual history, that everything is so interwoven that you can't just pick one thread and say, mm. okay, I'll pull that one, mm. because you don't know what it actually might change. Mm. I, I have a very fatalistic view towards life. I, I used to call myself an optimistic fatalist because I believed everything just had to happen the way it happened, but generally it happened for the best. <laughs> so the one thing I would change is if I could go back to the writer I was before I had children, because I was a professional writer for 10 years before I started having small people, I would go tell that that previous self of mine to write more while I still had the time. <laughs> Yes. Now we've mentioned Band of Sisters. That's a book that's going to be coming out just in the next couple of months. And and I'm sure you've got other projects on the way as well. So what is next for Lauren the writer? And tell us about Band of Sisters in particular. Well, Band of Sisters comes out on March 2nd, just in time for Women's History Month. It's based on the true story of the Smith College Relief Unit. 18 alumni of Smith College who went off to France at the height of World War I to bring humanitarian aid to French villagers right behind the front lines. And they wound up contending with German shells, French bureaucracy, recalcitrant livestock, and a British army who really firmly believed that women did not belong in a war zone. It's one of those incredible stories. I stumbled on it by accident when we were researching one of the Team W books, All the Ways We Said Goodbye, and we're looking into occupied France in World War I, and I was looking for Christmas customs in Picardy and found this memoir by a Smith woman talking about throwing Christmas parties for French villagers right behind the front lines in 1917. I thought, that's crazy. She can't be there. How are they there? And so I started reading. And next thing I knew, I was totally sucked in by the story of these plucky women who went abroad to help total strangers in deplorable conditions. It's the most amazing story. I feel so honored to have gotten to unearth it and bring it back to life for people. I'm also right now working on the fourth Team W collaboration that one is going to come out in autumn of 2022, and it's set around three generations um, of women in Newport, Rhode Island, in the Gilded Age, the 1950s, and the present day, when a Gilded Age mansion is being made over 
in one of those crazy makeover programs. And I'm also on my, my own writing life. I am working on a sort of prequel to the Smith book. I had not really intended to write a prequel of Band of Sisters to Band of Sisters, but I was really fascinated by the founder of the Smith College Relief Unit. The real founder was a woman named Harriet Boyd Hawes, who was a pioneering archaeologist. You know, at a time when women were really discouraged from excavation, she fought to be allowed to excavate and wound up excavating in Crete and doing really groundbreaking work. But she also periodically dropped everything to go do um, nursing in war zones. And there's this bit before she, in her real life, before she goes and excavates Crete, where she gets caught up as a student at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens in the Greco-Turkish War, winds up nursing there despite failing her Red Cross exam, is decorated by the Queen of Greece, and then for some reason drops everything and goes and nurses in the Spanish-American War before going back, resuming her archaeological career, excavating Crete and becoming famous in archaeological circles. I thought, wow, why did she do that? And of course, I'm not, I I am certainly not going to opine on why the real woman did that, but my fictional version of her, Mrs. Rutherford, as I was writing Band of Sisters, the Mrs. Rutherford character kept revealing little insights into her past. And so what I'm writing is basically the story of my Harriet Boyd Hall's equivalent, Betsy Hayes, later Mrs. Rutherford, who goes to Greece in the 1890s to become an archaeologist and finds herself suffering these life-changing events during the Greco-Turkish War, which then drive her to go nurse in the Spanish-American War and eventually make her the person she's going to be. So it's this big sweeping coming-of-age story. And I am having such a blast researching both the Spanish-American War and the Greco-Turkish War. It's a lot of drama. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That book was going to come out in March of 2022. But with the pandemic and being home with two small children, we've wound up pushing that back to March 2023. So at the moment, are you doing one book a year or one and a half books a year by the sound of it with your collaborative work? Is that what's going on? Well, it was. It really is supposed to be one and a half books a year. But right now, because we had to push back the Band of Sisters prequel by a full year, it's going to be a personal book every other year and a group book every other year. Yeah, 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 which is still a huge amount of work. Look, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I adore hearing from my readers. They can find me over at my website, www.laurenwillig.com, which has this bizarre accumulation of material that I've just added as the whim struck me over the past 15 years or so. It's apparently a webmaster's nightmare. But anyway, so, and I I spend a lot of time wasting time on my Facebook author page, um, which is Facebook slash Lauren Willig. And over on Instagram, where I'm just at Lauren Willig. So basically, I'm just Lauren Willig on all things. I'm also on Twitter, but I I stop by there basically once in a blue moon. I still haven't quite figured out how it works. So occasionally, I will stop by when I get yelled at by my publisher, and I'll retweet things or change my, my cover on that. But I don't really interact there. But I interact a lot on Facebook and on Instagram. Oh, and I am also, speaking of interacting, I am just launching a Pink Carnation read-along because it occurred to me that it's been a long time since I've read my own Pink Carnation series. And because I've also been doing comfort binge reading during the pandemic, I decided, okay, this would be a good time to comfort binge read myself because it's been long enough since I wrote them. So we're going to be reading a Pink Carnation book a month 
starting with the secret history of the pink carnation. There'll be a monthly Zoom book club meeting with a special guest co-host every month. So Sarah McLean is going to be joining me on February 24th to um, kick it off with the secret history of the pink carnation. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Look, we, we must get the links. I'll get the links from you for that. I was going to say we'll have links for all of these um, social media and, and your books and everything in the show notes for this episode, but we'll make sure that we get that Zoom meeting link in for people who oh, might be interested yeah. in taking part. That sounds like a wonderful idea because... So many people still are looking for light, you know, escapist fiction in this time. As you say, over and over, people say that their reading habits have changed during the pandemic. Yes, I think it's funny because for a while, everything went very dark. And I've always written funny. My natural metier is humor. Um, the darker the situation, the more tempted I am to snark about it. And for a while, everything went very serious. And I have to admit, I found it very hard to maintain that era of seriousness for long enough. Although in summer country, the seriousness of the subject matter helped a bit in terms of not giving into dark humor. But I, I found it a tremendous relief that one of the, I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we do want to laugh again and be entertained again. That maybe because our everyday lives are so grim right now that mm. we need to escape elsewhere rather than because our lives are comfortable, we need to test grimness in fiction. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. Look, Lauren, it's been wonderful talking. We have run out of time together now, but it has been wonderful talking. I could definitely be a candidate for the read-along, although where I'd fit in the time, I don't know, because I'm, <laughs> with these podcasts, I'm reading one book a week, at least for each of the authors that I'm talking to, apart from anything else. But it would be great to take part. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me here. This has been such a joy. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.